We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through various ways, including this very podcast that you're listening to. I hope you subscribe. Maybe leave us a review while you're at it. And I think you'll enjoy the content you find on this podcast. And then jump on over to leadingsaints.org and you'll find thousands of articles dedicated to leadership context as it relates to uh, being a Latter-day Saint. We have virtual summits that we've done. Check us out on social media and also a weekly newsletter that goes out that has unique content you won't find anywhere else. So uh, jump into the Leading Saints world. We're glad to have you. Today, I'm in downtown Salt Lake City at the Church History Library with Jenny Reeder. How are you, Jenny? I'm great. I'm so happy to be downtown again. Yeah. You, you've had you spent some time away from your, your, your main uh, office building, right? Like many of us. Yes. Awesome. And uh, and so how, how do you describe your your role here at the church in the, I guess, the church history department is, would be yes. accurate? Yes. I am the... 19th century women's history specialist in the church history department. I work, mm. I'm in the publications division. And so I work quite a bit on the church historians press editorial board and website and producing women's writings for that. That's awesome. And so you get to re- read some pretty cool journals and letters and find yes. information that hasn't been read in maybe yes. decades, right? Yeah. Lately, I've been working mostly with uh, minute books, hmm. minute books. They used to keep minutes of their meetings. So relief societies and primaries and young women, as I'm tracing Eliza R. Snow with her discourses. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah. Minutes is something, it's a, it's a lost art. I'm probably, we probably should do better at giving minutes in our meetings, but uh, you know, we, we do our best, but. That's right. Now your name you'll, uh, is, will pop up in Desert Book. You recently read yes. a, wrote a book about Emma, right? That's right. I just published a book. It's called First, The Life and Faith of Emma Smith. And I had such a great experience writing it. It was hard. Um, There was a lot of digging to do, but she didn't leave a lot of her own words. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the contemporary sources, contemporary primary sources are hard to find. But because of the access I had to the Joseph Smith papers, I was able to dig out a lot. And I also traveled to the Community of Christ, the former reorganized church in Independence, Missouri, and able to find even more of Emma's own words after Joseph died. So it was a lot of, it was fascinating. And I learned a lot. I had to kind of speculate a lot, but I was, I tried to be very clear in stating what I didn't know, but we we could somehow put pieces together. Yeah. So what was the overall goal of that book as you were beginning to write it? So Deseret Book reached out to me and asked me to write it. And my overall goal coincided with what the General Relief Society presidency wanted. They wanted me to write about Emma as a pillar of the Restoration and as a 
a significant founder of the church with Joseph. They were particularly interested in polygamy because that's a question that plagues many people today. Also, Emma's political activism and her business propriety, and also her life after Joseph died. Yeah. And these are all things that I think we don't, we don't talk about a whole lot. And my purpose, in addition to that, was to make Emma a real woman, to show how complicated she was and how complicated her life was and how committed she was, but also how her heart was broken in so many different ways. I wanted to do that to show that women today and church members today and men today, I don't want to divide it up by (laughs) gender, need to realize how important a role we play in what President Nelson calls the continuing restoration, but also that Emma was helped make Joseph who he was and that we need to continue that kind of work together, partnership, companionship, complementary assistance to each other as we serve in the church and as we build the kingdom. Yeah. So what do you think is the biggest misconception we have about Emma? Ooh, that's such a fun question. <laughs> that's I, maybe its own podcast episode. I know, right? <laughs> I actually think it's it's that so many members of the church were influenced by Brigham Young and his generation in thinking that Emma was a, a bad person, mm. that she had fallen or that she had lost her testimony and left the church because she didn't come West. With the other pioneers. And that's a, I mean, that is a a good point. However, I think that if we look more into Emma's life, especially that period after Joseph's death, we can see how she indeed kept her testimony and her conviction of the Book of Mormon and, and the role of her husband as the prophet and how much she loved her children, her adult children, and what kind of relationship she had with them. She did have tension with Brigham Young, but I think at the very end of her life, there's a story of her a dream that she had right before she died, where Joseph came for her and took her to a mansion, and in the mansion was one of her babies that she had lost mm. at the age of 14 months. And she picked him up, and Joseph said, you'll have all of them. And then she turned and saw the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's why I think Emma's is a story of redemption. Oh, wow. And if we go to the end, we can see that. Yeah. And didn't Joseph say something like, I'll go to the depths of hell for Emma, right? And it's funny because sometimes that's misquoted, but the actual occurrence of when that happened, Joseph was watching Emma. I don't know what she was doing, whether she was hosting an event in their home or what, but he kind of leaned over to someone who was sitting next to him or standing next to him and said, man, I would go to hell for that woman. Oh yeah, Like as a total compliment (laughs) of how much he loved her and how much he would do for her. But that also got twisted. Interesting. And I think Brigham Young was part of that just in saying he's going to have to go to hell to get uh, her. Yeah, that's not, not Yeah, and, it, and it, it's funny because it was about 100 years before people really began to look into Emma as a significant part of the restoration. They always kind of fell into that, that habit of thinking about yeah. her. Yeah, the human nature was uh, in all of us, and, yep. you know, in the history uh, of all these individuals, so. So I, I want to dig in our point of this interview, and I'm excited to explore not only Emma, but some of these other stalwart pillars of leadership, women in, mm-hmm. in the history of the church. And, you know, it's, we hear all these stories and 
you know, growing up in the church, going through Come Follow Me with Doctrine and Covenants, you hear, you know, similar stories over and over again. And sometimes these names that maybe didn't make it in the Doctrine and Covenants or some of the well-known history uh, man, his historical manuals, we we miss over, we skip over them or, and lose some of that rich history. So we're going to dive into that. But first, I want to pivot to a little bit of your personal history because uh, you're a, a cancer survivor, right? I am. I am. I some I sometimes hesitate to use the word survivor because oh, okay. I... My cancer, my leukemia has recurred four times. Oh, wow. Since 2010. So I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm a survivor of those those four times, but in the back of my head, I'm always worried that it's going to come back. Mm. And there's a, there's a chance. Yeah. But the more that I go, I've been in remission since 2017. Oh, wow. So that's a really long yeah. time. And the more time that passes, the less chance of it coming back. So I'm I'm delighted with that. And I... It's funny, though, because I've noticed how it's really affected my life physically. Um, I get so tired. I used to be a marathon runner. I used to do body pump at the gym. And I've just realized that I can't do that anymore. Yeah. And that's okay. I can do other things, but I'm just not the old Jenny. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we, again, that's a whole... I'm sure there's a personal history in the writing somewhere about those things. But it's interesting that you went through this, uh, this cancer experience while you were Relief Society president. Yes. And I would imagine, I mean, most bishops out there are thinking, the Relief Society president has cancer. Let's release her and at least take that off her plate, right? But I think there was a, a hidden blessing in maybe allowing you to stay there. So t- maybe what was the story behind that? So I was uh, living in Northern Virginia. I was in graduate school at George Mason University. So I lived in South Arlington, Virginia, just outside of D.C., and I had the greatest ward. It was the, I, I, I don't know that I can have ever have another ward like that. It was just a very high functioning ward. And my bishop had called me to be Relief Society president in September, I think it was, of 2010. And within the next couple of months, we had a, an older woman who passed away. And then we had a baby who was born with trisomy 19 who passed away. And then in November, I was diagnosed with leukemia. So it was just like boom, 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 crazy stuff all in a row. (laughs) But my bishop, he and I got along very well. He's a dear friend. He's still a dear friend of mine. And he really wanted to keep me in. It was something he said immediately after my diagnosis. He really wanted to keep me in that position. Um, I had incredible counselors who were able to shoulder a lot of what I couldn't do. But I actually did lead from my hospital bed or my bedroom at home. In fact, this is back in 2010. And when I was in the hospital, the elders corn president really wanted to loop me in to ward council. And so he, this is before Zoom, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And I don't know how he figured it out, but he got a camera for my computer. And so I was a part of that from my hospital bed. And it was so cool. And then later on, I realized, you know, there are really great things that I can do. I think I can visit or have less active members visit me at home because they're not going to say no to going to visit a cancer-ridden Relief Society president, Yeah. right? And then another thing my bishop taught me was that I needed to learn how to receive service. So I had an incredible compassionate service leader who made a calendar and People signed up to take me to appointments when I was home and couldn't drive or to bring me meals or even to come visit me in the afternoons. I had 
I had three roommates who worked all day. And so it was just nice to have someone come and check in with me. And sometimes it was one time it was Marian Anderson and she just sat on the stairs and cried with me. It'd been a hard day, but she just put her arm around me and cried with me. And that was so powerful. And other times someone would come over and vacuum my floor. And I felt so dumb asking someone to vacuum my floor. Um, it was an incredible experience. And I got to know those women in my Relief Society on, on such a deep level. I also loved um, sending emails and sending cards in the mail, old school, snail mail. <laughs> but it was so funny because I could feel the spirit directing me in writing to know what they wanted, what they needed to hear. And it was almost like I was giving them blessings through a pen and a cheap card from the dollar spot at Target. I was completely aware of what they needed. And it was actually a really beautiful time. It saved me in a way to be able to have that kind of distraction Yeah. instead of curling up in a ball and, and staying in bed all day. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm, I'm intrigued by is that when you get a t cancer diagnosis, I mean, obviously your priorities go from many to like one, is, which is staying I need to alive. stay alive. I need mm -hmm. to figure, or am I going to die? Like, I mean, I, I would imagine, I know I can see my, my brain going this direction of just obsessing over that, like- mm -hmm you know, am I even going to be here in five years, you know, in three mm -hmm. years, right? And so how, do, in that state of mind, with all that, that heaviness and trauma, how do you even begin to reply to an email or say, yeah, what should we do for, you know, Relief Society? You know, I think that's a really good question. And I think that was the first time. And then after that, several times in the hospital where I felt like I was reduced to numbers, my blood counts and my weight and how much I was intaking and outputting and how mm. much what, how many red blood cells and how many platelets and how many white blood cells and neutrophils and all these other things. So I think it was me fighting to remember that I was more than a number. And that was what kept me going. Yeah. And it was incredible. Yeah. And did you feel like, I mean, because you need purpose in mm -hmm. life. I mean, and we all do, but especially those who maybe are facing a dramatic diagnosis like that. Were there moments you had to sort of push through to reach that purpose? Absolutely. Yeah. Like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Like even just, I, re, I remember thinking, and every once in a while, I still think this because I'm dealing with a lot of side effects and I still have to take a lot of meds, nothing like what I had to take before. But just thinking every day, I have to get up and get out of bed and take a whole bunch of pills and do it all over again. It felt like a decision I had to make every day. Okay. All right, reader, let's get out of bed. All right, reader, let's take your pills. So it was a completely different life than I had lived before. Yeah. yeah and that's inspiring. Just, it's just the little things, the little steps mm -hmm. of I'm going to get out of bed. And mm -hmm. I know this Relief Society birthday party probably doesn't matter in the scheme of eternity in my life, but today it's going to give me purpose and, yeah, and absolutely. A, a huge blessing, right? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. So, I mean, what would you say to that, I, that leader that maybe has that knee-jerk reaction of, okay, this person has a, whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's a tough time in their marriage, whether whatever it is, we wanted to say, oh, well, let's help them by releasing them. But any, and, and I, I get it. There's going to be situations where that may be appropriate, sure. but how can we better step back and consider that? I think that's a really good question. In fact, today I, w I had lunch with a coworker and she's single. She has a brother who she's caring for, who was in a really bad accident and is now a quadriplegic. Mm. So, and she was just called as Relief Society president. And so I think that it's an incredible opportunity 
to learn and to give and serve and feel yourself being magnified in ways that you've never been magnified before, or to receive revelation in ways that you have never received it before. And I think that is such a huge blessing. And for me, I had more quiet time. I wasn't rushing around to work or school or whatever, driving in in DC traffic. But I had more quiet time where I really could soak in that spirit. So, And it was an incredible exchange of service, like truly incredible, where I could, I had to be creative in serving other people. And they served me in such beautiful, tender, powerful ways. I remember one friend, Patty, who was in my Relief Society, and I really wanted to go to the temple, but I was bald. And I didn't know if I had the energy to do everything. And it was a kind of a long drive to get to the DC temple. But she came with me and she helped me. And it was so beautiful. And my bishop was really in, in tune with the spirit, I think. But he also checked in with me several times a day, whether that was visiting me in the hospital or when I was home at home or texting me or calling me or emailing me. He was just, he, I was at the top of his mind and I knew that hmm. and it made all the difference. Yeah. So it was actually a, a very beautiful experience. Yeah. And I'm trying to just put my, myself in the shoes of that bishop. Like I'd be, it'd be so difficult for me to call and ask my Relief Society <laughs> president to do something or to mm-hmm. delegate something to her. But it, it sounded like just that, that open communication yes. created that opportunity. Right. And, yes. and it was, and he was more well, well, more aware of how how capable or the, mm-hmm. the, where you were at and what you could do in each day to day. Yes. And I was so grateful for that. Yeah. So grateful that he got that, that he yeah. understood that. I remember one time when I was doing better, but I was trying to finish my dissertation so I could get a job in real insurance <laughs> instead of student insurance. Um, and he asked me to go serve at the Bishop's storehouse. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but I did. And um, it was a great experience. Wow. That's awesome. You know, another thought that came to mind, and this is going to be sort of the maybe an overarching theme of our conversation today, is that we have such a strong tradition of leadership in our church. I mean, this this concept of lay leadership and and the weak and the simple and God asking individuals who on paper have no business leading, you know, even Joseph Smith, right? But nonetheless, there's such a sanctifying nature to it. And when we are in these situations where mentally we sort of set people aside outside of the leadership possibility, it sort of is this disconnection from our tradition as, as saints. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody's going through a hard time or cancer or health problems, you know, we, can, we, we should lean into that and, and still consider them for these things or, or not release them too quickly because it's so much has a deep tradition of being a Latter-day Saint is being asked to serve and many times being asked to lead, you know, and, and mm-hmm. what a great blessing it was in, in your life. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've loved in my research of the Nauvoo Relief Society is that the two goals, according to Joseph Smith of the Relief Society, were to provide relief and to save souls. And I gained such an incredible testimony of that because of my experience, my personal health issues. That when I provided relief to someone else, I found relief for myself. Hmm. And that work of relief is salvific work. It was beautiful. And I learned a completely new layer of the atonement of Jesus yeah. Christ. It was very powerful. Yeah. And, and as people, you're talking about that sister who sat with you and cried with you, like as you learn how to sit with people in their trauma, in their 
trial, then you were able to do that to Mm -hmm. others. You know, that's Mm -hmm. such a, that grace for grace principle. Right. And I think my friend Marion that did that, I think she had such an insightful experience herself that she would continue to do that with other people. And I love that. Yeah. That's what Relief Society is. Yeah. And, and just really inspiring story. And, and because it can feel like, oh, a way I can serve, you know, Sister Reader is by releasing her. And, you mm-hmm. know, that's how I'm going to serve her. But instead, just step back and be prayerful about this process and mm-hmm. say, well, actually, there could be some deeper blessings here for this individual. So, And you know, awesome. one more thing, I think, and I saw this when, when I had my second bone marrow transplant, my and I think this happened the first time and that second time. But my bishops in both times realized that this was actually really a way to rally the ward. Hmm. You know, we had a ward fast for me and people were praying for me and I could feel that. And that second time it was during a time where I was so sick and I really honestly would have been fine if I died. Hmm. But the fact that I knew that people were praying and fasting for me and they had faith for me when I couldn't really rallied the ward and it buoyed me up in an incredible way. Wow. Wow. That's inspiring. Anything else from just that time of your life and being a leader that uh, we need to touch on? I think it's incredible to develop relationships that will continue. I'm single, so I'm a little bit transitory, (laughs) but I did live, live in DC for seven years and we became each other's family and it was beautiful. And I love the way that they rallied around me. When I graduated and moved back to Utah, the next Relief Society president had been my compassionate service leader, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, wow. So we kind of joked that it was the curse <laughs> oh, <no>. of the <laughs> president. But it was incredible. Even though I wasn't living there, I was watching the way people took care of her. And then we've had such deep tragedies come out of that ward as people have moved on. A friend who moved to Bountiful lost her five-year-old boy in a drowning accident Uh. on a family reunion in Costa Rica. And everyone from that ward just came from all directions to support her and love her. Another woman in the ward who was still living in DC, her husband was a lobbyist and he he was in China. And she had just had her fourth baby like six weeks before and he died of a staph infection. Like so random. And that ward from all over again, all over the country, just rallied around her and made sure that she had the financial means to stay home with her sons for as long as she could and had people go over and, and build playgrounds and take the sons and, and do all sorts of things. And it, it was such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And there's countless other examples of that, but that ward just became this expansive um, web all across the country where whenever anyone needed help, we knew we could call on friends from that ward. Yeah, that's inspiring. That's awesome. So let's pivot into uh, back to, to history a little bit. There's so many, I, I have a list of, of your notes here that uh, I'm, I'm so excited to talk about. The, and maybe let's talk about this concept of authority. And let me preface this with, I just got this email this week, and I've gotten a similar email from so, so many other sisters where Because there is this feeling, there is this movement, and I think every male leader out there wants to include the sisters in meetings and ward council, and and so they're doing different things to do that. You know, they may not hit it right on the the head every time, but they're they're really trying to do that because you know they don't they don't want to dominate or anything like that. And 
this one sister basically said, like, I've been Relief Society president. I've been primary president. I've been in these ward council meetings. I see the bishop trying. But at the end of the day, he makes the final call, right? And so there's this feeling of, like, no matter how we lay the chairs out in ward council or what we do, there's always this limiting influence that women have. What thoughts come to mind that maybe can launch us into some history? Sure. So a couple of thoughts come to mind. And I've been a Relief Society president three times. <laughs> wow. And I've, and I've worked with several different bishops, you know. The, yeah. And I've been young women's president. And the last two young women's president and last Relief Society president were in inner city wards in Salt Lake City, and which was a completely different experience as well. And I have seen how different bishops work, and some work very cohesively with the, with the women leaders, and some don't. And that's just the, their past experience and their understanding, mm-hmm. and, and that's just the way it goes. But I've seen it work fantastically, and so I believe it can happen, which is also a curse, because when it hasn't worked, it's very frustrating. Yeah. I think that it really comes down to the fact, and now I'm going to turn to history. Yeah. With the organization of the Nauvoo Relief Society, Joseph Smith said that the church was never fully organized until the women were organized. And he intended for the Relief Society to be as a sort of companion to the priesthood quorum, as an order of the priesthood quorum. And, and sometimes Eliza R. Snow and other people say things like, the Relief Society is just another quorum of the priesthood. So we don't use those words today, mm-hmm. obviously. But I think that if we realize how significant the Relief Society is, both men and women, that we can realize how valuable it is to have women involved in ward councils and in making decisions and in trusting them. I love the talk that Elder Oaks gave. I can't remember when it was. I think it was... Probably five years ago. Yeah. And it was in a priesthood (laughs) session. But he talked about how when women receive callings or assignments by priesthood leadership, that they have priesthood authority in their stewardship. And I think that's a pure gospel doctrine. That's a pure term and a pure idea. And I think sometimes bishops want to crowdsource and allow other members of the council to do things. And other times they want to keep a tighter fist on on things. But I think the most fruitful and beneficial experience for everybody is when women are recognized for that leadership and given the room to do what they can. I think it's interesting that things have changed a little bit under President Nelson, where he really has asked bishops to be more involved with the youth and for Relief Society presidents and elder, elders corn presidents to sort of lead the other efforts in the church. And I think that's incredible. That takes a lot of trust, I think, of the people that, you, that are in those positions. But I love the way that Emma Smith really asserted that, and she really understood that. Now, in her revelation that we now know today is Section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants, she was told that she was an elect lady, and she was, she was told that she would expound scriptures and exhort the church. And I think that was kind of a hard thing for her to understand in 1830. Women didn't so much lead organizations Well, they did lead female organizations, but they didn't so much preach. Hmm. And if they did preach, they were kind of seen as the outliers and the crazies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Radicals, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that she had to figure out what that meant. And it was actually 
not for 12 years until the Relief Society was organized. And they were in a more stable place in Nauvoo where they could organize. And I think that she learned how to lead and she learned and established what her principles of leadership were. She was very understanding of the needs in the community. And so we get this incredible exchange of services where someone will come and say, I need work. I'm a really good seamstress. And someone will come and say, I need clothing. And that she matches them up. So it's this incredible coordination and exchange of services. But she's also tasked with, with leading the moral purity of the community and of the women in Relief Society. And she takes that very seriously. And that's a normal thing for organ- women's organizations at that time. There are many in big cities in New York and Boston and Philadelphia where women are really trying to clean up the communities um, in a moral sense. And I think Emma took that very seriously. In the Nauvoo Relief Society, you have to apply for membership. And part of that was because the Relief Society was a preparation for these women to actually receive their temple ordinances. Hmm. And so they wanted to be careful about who they allowed in. They wanted to make sure that they were worthy, kind of like when we get our temple recommends. Hmm. Yeah. That they were worthy, that they would support Joseph Smith. During this time, we also see a lot of of tension, inner tension, and outer tension, inner within the church, people who um, have some issues with his style of leadership and who claim more power and authority than they probably should have had. I keep thinking of Section 121 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And I think Emma really took that seriously. I also think she did a lot of that expounding and exhorting with the hymn book, where she chose hymns that would reflect Latter-day Saint theology and doctrine and that would unite the congregations. And I think that she had these little uh, sort of passages of, of learning and of experience that led her to the Relief Society. She was then in September of 1843, the first woman to receive her endowment and she then passed that on to other women. So not only was she the president of the Relief Society, but she was sort of the matron. Yeah. They didn't have a completed temple then. But I think that's all in, it's so interesting in how that ties yeah. together. And so with all these many responsibilities or invitations, was that all, all in the context of being the president of relief, the Relief Society? Or was it sort of sometimes conflated with being the wife of Joseph Smith. I think it was both. And I think that's one thing it's kind of hard for us to understand because we've lived years of structure and order. And this is the order in which things happen. And you have to do this before you do this. There's handbooks and there's, yeah. Right. (laughs) And Joseph did not receive a handbook in the sacred grove. (laughs) He had to figure it out. And I think the remarkable thing about Joseph and Emma was that she helped him figure it out. Yeah, they were in it together. They right? were in it together. Yeah. And we don't have record of their pillow talk or their conversations in private. Like we have records of Joseph with his um, scribes and with the Quorum of the Twelve and the Council of Fifty and the High Council and the City Council and all the councils. But I think it's significant that Emma did influence him significantly in including women and and uh, making the church a place that was larger than what they had at the time. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, being the wife of a leader, it can sort of feel like this um, diminished role or, you know, even just sort of this tradition we have that we don't really know what to call the wife of a mission president. It's always right. the mission president and wife or 
or some people just sort of say, oh, we've been asked to serve as mission presidents. Right. But, you know, what does that mean? Right. And so, but it, being the wife, like, it just sort of doesn't seem as, as powerful. But I always talk about the, the wife, the bishop's wife as this is sort of this unofficial calling that you may not be set apart in, but you know, you're into this together and there's some great leadership opportunities there. And, but I realize it'd be nice to formalize some of these things, but to sort of step into that authority. Right. Right. And I think it's interesting if we actually turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 25, I think there's some really interesting uh, words that the Lord uses to teach Emma about this, about Mm -hmm. being the wife of the prophet or the first lady of the prophet. He says to her, the office of thy calling shall be for a comfort unto my servant, Joseph Smith, thy husband in his afflictions with consoling words in the spirit of meekness, which means she's supposed to support him. Right. But he doesn't use the word support. He uses the word comfort and he uses the word office, which I think means you are given this special assignment. Hmm. Um, When I think of office, I think of my office here in the church history library that has my name on the door and I do something specific in that little room. And I think it's significant that this idea of comfort is not coming from underneath. It's coming from over. And she's to cover him with comfort when he needs it. And she does that. She writes him letters to comfort him in his afflictions when he's in Mm. Liberty Jail or almost any time they're separated. Those letters are so beautiful. And I also think that it's significant that that word comfort, I think of in the New Testament, right before... Christ goes to Gethsemane, he tells his disciples, I will not leave you comfortless. I will give you another comforter. And so in a way, Emma's role as the wife of the prophet was divine and calling upon these divine roles. It also says that in verse six, thou shalt go with him at the time of his going and be into him for a scribe. So she's to go with him. She is to leave her family. And we know that from the Bible, you're supposed to leave your family and cleave into your husband and cleave together as a husband and wife. And she does that. Once she leaves Harmony in 1831, she never sees her parents again. But she is dedicated and she does go with Joseph. But I also kind of wonder if when he dies and the saints are leaving Nauvoo, if we can sort of expand the definition of that phrase, that she chooses to stay with him Hmm. at the time of his staying Wow, that's powerful. And another thing that I love also is when verse nine, it says, thou needest not fear for thy husband shall support thee in the church for unto them is his calling. And that makes sense, right? For a bishop's wife, for a stake mm-hmm. president's wife, for a mission president's wife, for a temple president's wife, for a general authority's wife, is that they should, these women should support their husbands in their callings. But I think if we, again, look at this in a slightly different way, your husband shall support you in the church. So she also has significant roles, yeah. right? She becomes the Relief Society president. She becomes the, the head of the temple work for women. And he is supporting her the same way I would hope that all mission president leaders, whatever, support each other or temple president and matron support each other. Yeah. Now, I'm just thinking like, what a powerful section to read to, you know, a stake president could read to the the bishop and his wife as they're being called or mm-hmm. these types of things. And I realize I want to be sensitive, maybe the women are listening, thinking, so here we go again, you're just telling me to support my husband and, you know, help him along. But I think it's just helpful. You know, it is, it is messy because of the, mm-hmm. the, the patriarchal nature of the priesthood and the, these offices that, that have been restored and the keys and whatnot. 
and putting them up against the backdrop of modern times, it sort of does seem like oh, you're asking me to squint and tilt my head a little. Yeah, it doesn't look great now, but there is some some power when we step into these roles of saying, oh, I'm not just supposed to take care of the kids and make sure dinner's warm on the table, but there's maybe a deeper role as I step in and, and seek for guidance in, in some of these uh, callings that come to a spouse. Absolutely. And I think that I mean, we could look at that, too, as the husband of a Relief Society president or of a young women's president, especially when she has to go to girls camp. Right. (laughs) But I think that it also depends on you and how much you want to put into that support or comforting role and how much you feel like you can, because you can in many ways influence a congregation or, I don't know, young women, you know, as a support There's so many things you can do if you seek for it and choose to define it for how it would work for you. Yeah, love that. So around this concept of authority, anything else, any other history to to consider when it comes to this, you know, what authority that uh, women have? So I think it's really significant, this idea. Joseph said that he was going to organize the Relief Society after the pattern of the priesthood and after the order of the priesthood, meaning some have said that that would include a president and counselors and any other assistance needed. He also said, and this is interesting too, that if you need to add any other leadership roles in your organization, please do, like deacons or teachers. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. So we we don't think about it like that and in those terms today. But Sarah Kimball in Salt Lake City, she was the president of the 15th Ward Relief Society. And she actually, she and Eliza Arsenault together created a list of responsibilities. And they had deaconesses who would come and women in their Relief Society who were assigned to come and prepare the room for Relief Society. If it was cold, they would build a fire. They would bring water. They would, you know, clean and sweep and whatever. She had teachers, which were visiting teachers, who would minister and visit all the sisters in their blocks and in their wards. And then I don't, I can't remember how she used priestesses, but we always associate priestess with the temple. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's really cool. Yeah. And I, I also think that teaches us that we too can expand our definitions of what we need and always within the alignment of the handbook. But at times I've had three counselors because I needed that help, or I've had an assistant secretary because I've needed that help. But I think it's significant to be able to to think outside the box and not just do things the way they've always been done. Yeah. And yeah. of course, you have to do that with the approbation of your bishop. Sure, sure. But I'd love just the principle there is this principle of empowerment that, you know, I'm going, let's make sure you have a clear purpose of how you can help build the kingdom in this this part of the vineyard, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's, a, that's strong. Let's see, where do you want, as far as, you know, going back to that sister's email, as far as like... Uh, speaking up when, it, you know, having your, your voice be heard. That's maybe an area that a lot of women try and f- they struggle finding that stage where they can feel comfortable speaking up. Yeah. And I think that was especially the case in 19th century America. It wasn't normal for women to speak publicly. Hmm. And if they were speaking publicly, they were, you know, they had significant roles like, I don't know, Susan B. Anthony, or if you even go earlier, like way, way back to Anne Hutchinson in the Massachusetts colony who felt called to teach and speak, but then she was thrown out of the colony. She was banished. So for speaking. uh Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Yeah. For gathering people in her home. And she drew upon scriptures in the New Testament to justify that. 
But I think I think sometimes we're not accustomed to uh, speaking from the stand or from a position of leadership. And we see this quite a bit in the Relief Society. Brigham Young, when he reorganized the Relief Society in Utah in 1868, he asks Eliza Arsenault, who is a very capable woman. She'd been secretary of the Nauvoo Relief Society, and she had kept the Nauvoo Relief Society minute book and knew, had studied it and knew what Joseph had taught and how the Relief Society was instituted. He asked her, first of all, to assist bishops in organizing relief societies. Hmm. And in some ways, I think that's awesome because they probably would, some of them hadn't, hadn't been in Nauvoo and had no idea. And they were like, please help. In other ways, I wonder if they felt a little bit threatened by a woman coming to them and saying, okay, this is what we need to do. And this is how we need to do it. And I, th- I sort of think it's the same today. But then Brigham Young also asked Eliza, I would like you to instruct the sisters. Now, Eliza doesn't speak much, if at all, in the Nauvoo Relief Society. At least she doesn't record herself speaking, hmm. except for one really incredible meeting that I love, April 19th, 1842. But when Brigham Young asked her and gave her the specific assignment to instruct the sisters, in her life sketch, she writes, my heart went pit-a-pat. <laughs> like she was scared. Wow. And especially in some of the early meetings that she attended, she would say for several years, she would say, I'm not accustomed to speaking publicly or to leading out, but I know that this is what the Lord wants me to do. And I also know that if we pray, the spirit will guide us and guide me to say something important and that will guide you to hear something, what you need to hear. The other thing that I love about her is she learned how to do this, but she also taught other women how to do this. She wasn't the only one. Mary Isabella Horn is another example. She was a Relief Society president in the 14th Ward. And she was so nervous, the record says, when she was first called to get up and preside over a meeting, that she literally had to have her two counselors come and hold her up (laughs) so she didn't fall down. Wow. So I think that's significant. But the more practice that she had, the better that she became and the more fluid she became at speaking. In fact, later, she would travel around Utah Territory with Eliza R. Snow, and she also would encourage women to speak. So there's something empowering that we can learn from this, something in giving voice to the marginalized or the quiet or the the unspeaking people is to give them a voice. It's incredible. And to, uh, to hear what they have to say. Yeah. And help with my history. Eliza Snow, she wasn't right after Emma. She was when they were, the Saints were in Utah. But this time it was when she yes. was Relief Society president. So Brigham Young shut down the Relief Society in Nauvoo in 1845. But I think the women had learned so many different important principles from the Relief Society that all through like winter quarters and crossing the plains, they would continue to meet, not in the name of Relief Society, but they would serve each other and bless each other and have very powerful spiritual experiences together and care for one another in a really treacherous time. Yeah. So yeah, Eliza became the de facto general relief society president. But here's another interesting thing was that they didn't call her to be the general relief society president, partly because they were still trying to figure out how all of this, these layers of organization would work. The first stake relief society president was called in 1877, right before Brigham Young died. And that was in Weber County in Ogden. 
and it was Jane Snyder Richards. And then in 1880, John Taylor met with the Salt Lake Stake women and they decided to form what they called then a central board, both for the Relief Society and for the primary and the young women. And Eliza was, of course, selected as the president of the Relief Society. But it's interesting because several times before that, people considered her that, but it wasn't made official until John Taylor called for that. And it also is interesting because it wasn't until after the death of Emma Smith in 1879. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And so was... She be considered the second Relief yes. Society president. Okay, but there was a gap there of some, yeah, maybe a hiatus of, of right. Relief Society. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. So in this concept of speaking up and you know seeing these records, it's would you say that like as the church through these early years of the Restoration, like was the were Latter Day Saints quite progressive as far as giving women opportunity to speak? Is that safe to say? Yeah, I think so. I think it's interesting during the Second Great Awakening. At the time the church was organized, you get this whole new idea of evangelical practice of religion, meaning you stand up and utter your beliefs and your convictions and your conversion and being called upon by the Holy Spirit. And so in that sense, it became sort of a, a popular thing and something that happened. But then as new groups and new churches were formed, they became more tightly controlled and the men took over most of the leadership. So while we have significant female leaders in other religions, I'm thinking of Anne Lee with the Shakers or women in the Quakers and in other places, it is significant that the Nauvoo Relief Society and subsequent relief societies were given this specific religious female authority to lead and to speak and to teach. And I, I remember, I love this story where Eliza, excuse me, is at a young women's meeting and she calls upon one of Brigham Young's daughters to speak. And her daughter was like, uh, the daughter was like, mm, I have no, I'm too scared. Right. Uh -huh. And Eliza said, well, never mind, but next time have something to say. <laughs> nice. And so she just encouraged women to have a scripture in mind. I mean, she said at the very least you could get up and read a scripture. Yeah. So she was really adamant about women becoming comfortable in speaking and exhorting and sharing and in teaching each other. Yeah. So how can some of these stories help inspire women today to, to speak up or to have that confidence? That's a great question. I love what President Nelson said that in his talk, A Plea to My Sisters, he said, we need you to speak up and speak out. And so he here is a prophetic call for us as women President Kimball did that even in, in 1979 when he asked for women to be sister scriptorians. And so I think part of that is engaging in the scriptures and in general conference talks and being able to and comfortable in making comments. Now, I am currently teaching gospel doctrine in my ward, and it's been crazy with Zoom. And now we're in person and I teach in the chapel so we can spread out a little more. But it's still hard to be able to call on people that don't always speak. You always have the ones that do and that yeah. are comfortable and have lots of great things to say. We give them a limit and say one okay. more comment. Yep. Right? yep, that's right. <laughs> but it's also very powerful to be able to call on people that haven't spoken and they often have very powerful things to say. And so I don't think we should be afraid to do that. And that can happen in many different forms. There have been times when I've texted someone before 
Sunday and said, hey, can you tell a story about this? Or can you comment on this quote or whatever? And I try to find people that don't speak up very often. And for the most part, they're delighted to be invited to think about something and to speak about something. But I just think there's something powerful about coming together and not having a lecture, but having a true discussion. Yeah. Because sometimes when we talk about speaking up and being heard, you know, or having women speak up and be heard, it's often we default to the context of ward council and making sure, right. okay, let's make sure we've heard enough from the sisters in the room. But a lot of this is just this building sort of this culture of speaking up where mm-hmm. women to women, they're saying, hey, why don't you share this comment as I'm teaching and mm-hmm. let's get, let's hear your voice more. Or it may be the empowering women to set up a point with a bishop and sit him down and say, Hey, I've got three things that I I don't really like how this is going. And I want to, I want to be heard mm-hmm. and go through this. Right. So, so I have a couple of comments about that. I, when awesome. I used to meet with my bishop in Northern Virginia every month before ward council. And it was in the evening and we had one in the evening and then one on a Sunday morning before church. But I would make an agenda when I went in to talk to him and he would get so used to this that he'd be like, okay, what's on the agenda today? <laughs> but nice. I felt the need to prepare myself and to have that uh, because it, it was limited time that I had to express to him some concerns or questions or hopes or whatever it may be thoughts about the Relief Society. I also think our church has gone through a really interesting trajectory, I guess you could say, So in the beginning, the Relief Societies, especially Nauvoo, was very discussion-oriented. And so it's not like you have discourses given in Relief Society, right? Mm -hmm. It's someone says this, and then someone replies. And then I think we went went through a a period, a long period, where it was more of a lecture. And we had, um, back in the day, this was before I really remember engaging in Relief Society, where they would have a literature lesson or a manners lesson or a home domestic lesson. And it was it was a, a lecture. And now that we have started using Come Follow Me and teachings of the prophets from General Conference, it just works so much better when you can return to that discussion mode and involve so many people. And I've heard so many people on your podcast talk about doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, last week in my Relief Society... It was about, it was Elder Renlund's talk about our God is a God of miracles. And it was one of the most powerful relief societies I've ever been in. And I think it was because the teacher, and sometimes I think they call them discussion leaders now even, (laughs) asked for experiences and women shared experiences of miracles. She had even asked someone to come in from the primary or a primary teacher who didn't get to come to relief society often. And she told us the most tender, beautiful experience and miracle at the death of her husband. And it was so beautiful. And everyone in there felt that. So, And another thing as a teacher, I feel like it's so important to acknowledge that. And so a lot of times when I'm teaching, a couple of weeks ago, I taught about this ministry of reconciliation that we find in Doctrine and Covenants about forgiveness and repentance. And I asked for stories, experiences, and this 90-year-old man told this story. His wife was Dutch and was the daughter of a man after World War II who had to was asked to send potatoes to their former enemies in Germany, and this incredible experience of coming to that. And the spirit was so strong in that huge chapel, 
And I just said, do you guys feel that? That is the spirit. And it's not just me bringing the spirit. It's the people yeah. in the class that are bringing the spirit. And it's yeah. incredible to acknowledge that. Yeah. And that goes for, for leadership as well. It's not just the, the leader that's that, you know, the bishops is bringing the leadership. I mean, he holds the keys, but sure. th- those keys are, are, you know, we have access to those keys and we can all bring leadership to the table Absolutely. And, and voices and things and, and authority. Mm-hmm. Right? It's awesome. Um, all right. What, let's talk about uh, the power of relief society and what we learned from history in that context. Yeah. So there was a very deep commitment to relief society. And I don't think we have that as much today. And I, part of that's the pandemic. Part of that is now we only have Relief Society twice a month. Part of that is we live such busy lives and our our families and kids are involved with so many different activities. And I work full time and I have a pretty heavy workload and we just don't get that time together as women. I think it's interesting that I told you my favorite Relief Society meeting from Nauvoo was April 19th. And it was an unscheduled meeting. Emma Smith wasn't there. But Zina Young, who was a member at the time, her name was Zina Jacobs. She had a sister, Prescindia, who lived out of town and had heard about Relief Society. And she really wanted to come. So she comes into town and they make her a member of Relief Society and um, have a very beautiful exchange of testimonies and of experiences. And Eliza R. Snow even blessed her that she would go forth and have this relief society in her bones and that she would share it with the people in her town and where she lived. And then later I see that Eliza expands that idea as she speaks. She travels all around Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada territories, establishing relief societies and training women. But she says something really interesting. There's a pattern. She repeats this idea of how relief society We are all like embers or coals, and we're all spread out in our homes and busy lives. But when we can come together to Relief Society, we can gather together our embers, and all of a sudden we have this flame of fire. Hmm. And then your ember is relit, and you can then take that ember back to your busy life, and it will warm you up and the other people that you're with. Hmm. And I love that. And I felt that in my Relief Society this week. I don't always feel that. Yeah. But if we could take into account that possibility, I think it would change everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a mindset shift, right? Because we get, again, we have such this long history traditions and you can just sort of show up like, okay, we typically sing a hymn and someone prays and then we do this and then Mm -hmm. there's announcements and someone's passing a list around. I don't know Mm -hmm. what the list, right? Right. And we get caught in that when to step back and really see as these this is an organization. I love that, you know, this history that you talk about that there's this initiation process, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not that we're going to go to membership applications and no. uh, right. But what that created was this initiation, like I'm part of something really special. And in mm-hmm. fact, I'm going to come from way out of town to attend mm-hmm. this meeting because it is so sanctifying and real. And, and the, the embers thing, cause some, I imagine some people come and their ember is completely dried out. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And they need the, the the community fire to reignite them so they can return to their homes, right? Yeah. Here's a great example, too. In 1886, this is a year before Eliza dies. She's not doing well. She has poor health, to be understood. She's 82 years old, right? Wow. 83 years old. And she is not able to attend the Salt Lake Stake Relief Society Conference. But she sends a letter and it is such a beautiful letter. And she tells them, 
May you have a copious refreshing of the spirit at this meeting. And I believe that's what she tried to do everywhere she went, because some of these settlements in Utah are so spread out in the middle of nowhere and places I've never heard of. And I've been grown up in Utah my whole life. But she tries to spread that the fire from Salt Lake out. And it's incredible to see how women pick that up and take that seriously. Yeah. But it, so it's not only a fire, but it's a copious refreshing of the spirit. She writes about that Nauvoo Relief Society meeting that they felt the spirit as a purifying stream, which is such a beautiful term. And if we can think about that and seek for that, and I think again, some days you're going to get it and some days you won't. Yeah. But if we go with that intent, like Heavenly Father, this week, I really need a copious refreshing of the spirit, or I really need my soul to burn, or I really need to feel the purifying stream that we we can not only as leaders seek for that, but as as members, we can we can ask for that. Yeah. And I'm just thinking just the the restructuring that you know, the, the church is staying and president Nielsen is, is laying out with, you know, really emphasizing the role of the elders quorum president and the relief society president, mm-hmm. where instead of maybe seeing our organization as a ward, it's actually two organizations working together, the, the men's organization and the right. women's organization. And yeah, there's a bishop that's working with the youth and is presiding over that structure, but to really empower the tradition of these organizations rather than, oh, that's just where the women go. And Mm -hmm. over there, that's where the men go. And that's what we do. Yeah. That's the second hour. (laughs) That's the second hour. So I think, and I just had this idea as you were saying that, I think that the Relief Society president is also enlarged in the sense that she calls upon ministering sisters to do sort of the groundwork for her. Mm -hmm. We have a huge ward. We're in a highly developing area And I don't know how she can keep track of all the people moving in and moving out. But she has set up these ministering sisters, as have other wards and relief societies, as per President Nelson's instruction. And there's something that I love that Eliza teaches about that. This this idea of reaching out, of teaching. They were first called teachers, then they were called visiting teachers. Now they're called ministering sisters. So the name has changed. Uh But the idea is still the same. Yeah. And the concept is this, as Eliza says, that you need to go into the homes of the people that you minister to, and you need to feel if the spirit is there or if the fire has gone out. And if it has, you need to take that woman into your bosom and hug her and warm her up Hmm. so that she can have that. How powerful is that idea? Wow. And how beautiful. How can we apply that to our ministry? Yeah. Just to go into a home or to reach out, you know, through text in whatever way that is possible and purposeful and to warm up that sister. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of my wife just this week. She called, uh, you know, she had a new ministering assignment. So she called one of the sisters on her list and mm-hmm. got her on the phone and sort of introduced like, hey, I'm uh, Alana and I'm your ministering sister. And it, it suddenly she said it suddenly got awkward and she said, oh, well, I haven't been practicing for about 12 years now, but I'd be happy to be a neighbor with you. And my wife's like, perfect. I would love that. You know, right? we don't have to talk anything church, but again, just that action of now there's an opportunity to warm her heart. And mm-hmm. again, not because, well, we got to get her back at church, no. but maybe yeah. it'll go that way. But, but, you know, 
my wife can still take that power of the Relief Society, that mm-hmm. spirit mm-hmm. to this the sweet neighbor. So, of course, yeah. absolutely. And I think, again, we can expand our wording and our definitions and what we're doing. Yeah. But the idea is still the same, is to make sure that that person is taken care of, that they are loved, and that if they have needs, whether they're physical or spiritual or mental or whatever, social, yeah, that we can help meet them. And in that sense, we're providing relief to them. And it's like we're joining this ministry yeah. of Christ. Right. Yeah. And that's the, it's well-named as a ministry. Yeah. Sister, Paul right? calls it in, in Corinthians, he calls it, you are an ambassador of Christ. Oh, that's powerful. Right. Love that. Love that. All right. Well, as we wrap up here, let's just do a... Let's just run down the all-star list here. Just some, maybe some past female leaders that uh, we don't get heard of, or maybe we do, and, and maybe there's unique perspective. So let's hit some of those. Yeah. I want to tell you about two women that I learned about when I was writing the book at the pulpit. One of them was named Jane Nyman. Never heard of her. Cute little, poor little lady in Nauvoo. Came from Pennsylvania. Her husband died shortly after they arrived. She married again. Her second husband died um, and she had six family members die. You know, all the stories, all the people are dying, right? (laughs) But she wanted to join the Nauvoo Relief Society. She had received assistance from them because of her dire condition. And so she applied for membership and her membership was turned down because there was a lot of gossip surrounding her daughters Mm. who got caught up in some surreptitious activity. And that was heartbreaking for her. Not only that there was so much gossip about her, but that they would think that she was a bad person because of that. She didn't become bitter. She stayed with the church, crossed the plains with one of her daughters and her husband, and eventually became the first Relief Society president in Beaver, Utah. Hmm. Small town Beaver. So she, she recognized the power of Relief Society, but her big thing was that charity covers a multitude of sins. And if we don't speak poorly about each other, but if we take up charity, then we will do something extraordinary. Yeah. And it, it's so beautiful. Her talk is, I mean, her discourse, I guess, in at the pulpit is very short. It's just a paragraph, but it's such a powerful talk once you know about her Yeah. and about what she went through to come to that understanding. Yeah. And that, that's powerful because there are... Sometimes people can say things that sting so much and hurt for so long, Mm -hmm. but to still maintain that perspective of charity towards those that say those things, right? Yeah. And I think that's important today. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely important. So the second one I want to talk about is I found a talk that was printed in the Women's Exponent that was given, which was a 19th century Mormon women's newspaper. And it was given in the Salt Lake City 11th Ward Young Women. And it was about prayer. And the author of the talk or the giver of the talk um, had the initials E.G. Jones. Hmm. And I, it was such a beautiful talk and incredible. One of my favorite parts was the fact that she said, prayer is the key to the state house of our understanding and communication. It is what allows us to c- communicate with God. But then she says, there is no pit so deep, no hole so dark that you cannot reach out to your heavenly father in prayer. Hmm. And it's just beautiful. So, but I had to find out who this person was and I had to call on a family history specialist and we found her. Her name was Eleanor Georgina Jones. Did you know it was a 
a woman when yeah because she was speaking to the to the oh, okay, gotcha. young women in salt gotcha. lake and we found her in a few places in the church history catalog but we also found her in census records in 1850 in nashville tennessee and in that census record it showed that her mother was mixed race the man that was with her mother we don't know if that was her father we can assume that but we don't know was black and her siblings had all been born in different states. So like Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, all over. And this is in before the Civil War, right? So this, we don't know anything about these people. If the children came from different fathers, if they were slaves on different plantations, hmm. we don't know. All we know is Eleanor and her sister joined the church and that she was white enough or light enough when she came to Salt Lake, that she passed as a white person. And as a result, they allowed her to go to the temple. They allowed her son to hold the priesthood. And she sort of traveled back and forth between Salt Lake and California, where her husband lived. So there's just not much known about her at all. There are no photographs of her. Hmm. She had no journals, no letters, she had one letter she wrote to, to Brigham Young saying she was going back to California for a time. But she's a very unknown person. But I felt like she was kind of leaving breadcrumbs for us to find her. And we discovered that she died in Redding, California. And we were able to get the death certificate and find out that she died of a stroke 10 days. She had a stroke. And then 10 days later, she died and was buried in an unmarked grave. Wow. And so her story is lost. But then when you think about who she was and the words that she said, there is no pit so deep and no hole so dark that you cannot reach Heavenly Father in prayer. What an incredible woman. Yeah. And so we don't even know why she maybe was even speaking at this occasion. No. Wow. But the power was definitely there. Yeah. And almost this, like even those that feel like they have, that are a no name in mm -hmm. the history of the church, you still can have such influence that reaches the reaches the future of, right. of the saints, right? And her talk now is on our gospel library app oh, in, awesome. at the pulpit. And so I love to share that when I speak yeah. at girls camps, especially. Cool. Because I think that's a, such an important message. But I think it also tells us in the present day that we really need the voices of the people that don't speak up, that are on the margins, that yeah. don't participate because yeah. they can have incredible things to say. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you remind me that at the pulpit is in the gospel library. I sometimes yes. forget that they, they put it in there. Awesome. Yes. Any other sisters uh, in, in the, in the, there's so many others and you write many other books, but uh, this has just been so inspiring and, and helpful. The, the last question I want to end on, um, and well, let me first ask this. If people do want to find more of your writing and mm -hmm. whether it's about Emma or at the pulpit, wherever, anywhere you'd send them specifically to, to learn more about that? You can find my Emma book at Deseret Book or on Amazon. I have a chapter in a book called A Place to Belong that was published by Deseret oh, Book yeah. as well. Janice Johnson and I did a compilation of women's experiences. It's called The Witness of Women, Firsthand Experiences and Testimonies of the Restoration, which is a very powerful, easy to use book for, especially now when we're studying the Doctrine and Covenants for different events to bring women's voices into our lessons and in our talks and family home evenings. And then of course, at the pulpit is a great compilation. Awesome. 
The last question I have for you is a unique one because just walking these halls, there's just such a spirit here. And you, you know, in a typical uh, world, you work here day to day and and walk these halls. And I bet there are moments you've had probably remarkable experiences where you felt some of these spirits almost sit down next to you as you're reading their journal. So whether you feel qualified to do this or not, as a representative of these women in the history, these sweet, wonderful Latter-day Saints, what message, what encouragement would do you think they'd give to women of modern times? For me personally, these women have become my host. I have a host of earthly people and I have a heavenly host. And some of them are my family members, but a lot of them are these women. And they've sat with me in lone and dark hospital rooms or when I've been scared or when I've been working on them. I think that if we can know who they are and understand them, we can have them with us and they can give us courage and they can understand our complicated life experiences and help us to find different places where we can pray or we can attend the temple and feel them there as well. But I think they provide such depth it's sort of a different kind of depth. Like I think it's more than 3D depth. I think it's like another dimension, <laughs> right? That we can't see or, or understand with our mortal eyes or ears. But I think that once we understand that these are our spiritual sisters and that we belong to a sisterhood, not just mothers, but sisters, and that we're building the kingdom in different time periods, but we're doing it together. It's an incredible, empowering thing to feel that and to be a part of that. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three free sessions of the LGBT Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.